welcome to Adoption Adventures. Thanks ever so much for tuning in and having a listen. Um, I'm really excited. I've got a guest joining me today. Um, I mentioned a number of weeks ago um, that I'd been spoken to about FASD and that this was something I knew a little bit about, but I get asked a lot of questions about it and I don't I never wanted to give you the wrong answers. But as I mentioned this, I got a message from a listener who said, I think you should speak to Ali. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to introduce you all to Ali, um, who's here to talk to us about FASD. So hi, Ali. Hi, Richard. <laughs> um, would you be able to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Ali Brown. And I'm the project manager for FASD Hub Scotland, which is hosted and managed by Adoption UK in Scotland. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, and I'm confident from that introduction that you're going to be the person that we need to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do, Ali, is I am going to pretend that I know nothing about FASD. Okay. And I would like you to pretend that I'm a complete and utter idiot. <laughs> and, then <laughs> and then that way, I will definitely know where it is so as I can help other people. Um, and it means that we'll, we'll cover all, all aspects and everything. So if we start from the very basics, FASD, what, what does this stand for? Okay, so FASD stands for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. And it's caused by what we call PAE, which is prenatal alcohol exposure. Okay, okay. So this is um, exposure to alcohol during pregnancy. Um, uh, is, is there a, a particular stage of the pregnancy that there's an exposure or is it who knows? sort of? No, there's no known... Um, exposure window there's no known level if you want to call it that so the message that we would always give is that it's no alcohol no risk for the full yeah. pregnancy so the chief medical officer's advice is if you are planning to become pregnant or are pregnant then you should avoid alcohol yeah. not drink alcohol yeah, um, yeah is the clearest way to put it for the full part of you know the full nine months or the full period that you're pregnant Okay. And obviously, I mean, now there's a, a crossover, isn't there? There's obviously there's moments where people aren't even aware that they're pregnant. Um, so would carry on about their everyday life if they weren't necessarily trying and they wouldn't be aware. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, know. in fact, it's a huge percentage. 45% of um, British females um, don't plan a pregnancy so they become pregnant and it's unplanned so if you're not planning then you're not making any changes to any part of your lifestyle whether that's drinking reducing your caffeine taking folic acid not drinking you know sorry not eating cheeses and fish yeah. and you know all of the stuff that goes along with um somebody that would be planning to become yeah. pregnant that's a that's a huge number isn't it that's, it that's, is yeah it's a huge number almost almost half of almost half not planned wow that's that's incredible I, I never would have sort of envisaged it being that high so yeah so obviously you've got that bracket of of um sort of mothers that are carrying on about their everyday life and like you say it's not just alcohol it's it's all other 
aspects yeah. of not being aware of that they need to make those adaptions. Then there's the other aspect of obviously there are sadly some cases where my parents or mums are are aware but are either they have an addiction or they have sort of a situation where they're not able to stop um, and they would continue to drink during pregnancy. Um, yeah and that's going to be the case for for you know a group of people and I guess what I'd really want to get across is that we need to make sure we don't create any stigma because there's already quite a lot of stigma out there around um, FASD and prenatal alcohol use um, but as we've just said there 45 percent of people not knowing that they were that you know that they are, or they're not planning a pregnancy so if you're not planning you can't make any changes to your life or you're not thinking about making those changes and you're absolutely right there are people who have got a relationship with alcohol that's maybe not the most helpful mm. but this isn't you know that whole messaging about no alcohol no risk we we really want to you know lots of people in that 45 percent would find out they were pregnant and would stop drinking alcohol and would make those other changes as well in lifestyle yeah. as soon as they found out they were pregnant but unfortunately the potential of that damage from the alcohol has already taken place and so that's the kind of message we want to get out there and I think as well it's sort of remembering that alcohol is you know it's not illegal um, most people at some point, most adults at some point have, you know, tasted alcohol um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, it's, it's used a lot in society, whether it's commiserating, celebrating just because it's Friday night, uh, you know, the end of lockdown for lots of people involved <laughs> alcohol. So, you know, alcohol, we use it in church. We, we use it in so many bits of society. And historically speaking, actually, it was cleaner to drink than water. So, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in us um, yeah. that, yeah, we, you're right. Yes, there will be a, a portion of people who, um, you know, alcohol dependency is part of their, you know, what's happening in their life. But actually, it's much bigger than that. Um, the mm. whole kind of conversation around pregnancy and alcohol. Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, it's so, so important to remove as many stigmas as we possibly can i'm i'm not being funny the world has got enough stigmas we don't need to add really? to no um and you know whilst let's just say my mum was planning to be pregnant and started all of the planning and did all of those things there's still errors there's stu still human error there's still things that happen along the way and to sit there and blame it doesn't help anything does it it doesn't. And <clears throat> I don't know, Richard, I'm looking at you and trying to guess how old, maybe we're a similar age, you know, 70s babies. But, you know, even at that point um, in the 70s, my mum, when she had me, it was still have been like, oh, you know, have a stout for the iron, all that kind of thing. So and in fact, even still back in the 1980s, um, it, not in this country, but in uh, countries overseas, women were actually intravenously given alcohol as part of the um, inducement process in hospital. Wow. Yeah. So you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> That's just bonkers. Um, so we've come a long way in our thinking and our understanding and, you know, just I think generally about alcohol in society, how we would deem that you know, mocktails, all that kind of thing are really popular these days. So I think it's having like having different alternatives available and that that being like socially acceptable, because I'm sure like you and um, like me, 
then you've probably been out with friends and somebody's had like you know a coke or um an orange and everyone's like oh what, what why why is that happening you know yeah. <laughs> oh have you got something you want to share with us um and it's and I think it's just trying to remove all of that and it just being like ah, actually this is a choice um yeah. it's a choice whether I drink or I don't drink um an alcoholic drink absolutely yeah no I, I think you're absolutely right so from sort of going back so uh, a mum will drink during pregnancy and that can cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder so what what could be the causes what what could what would we see um what does fasd look like yeah so symptoms is is what we would sort of call them mm-hmm. um, and the symptoms the characteristics an individual with fasd commonly so it's a spectrum so much like autism which is also a spectrum if you've met one person with fesd then you've met one person with fesd and the spectrum is quite wide okay but commonly speaking people would struggle with their um, executive functioning they would struggle with impulse control um, they might struggle with things like proprioceptions, knowing knowing where the sort of their body is in space and time. Um, oh, okay. They'd struggle with their memory, um, short-term memory in particular. So once they've learned something and laid that down, and that's you know become part of them, but sort of that kind of um, one of our posts recently was about you know once we've learned habits, then we can do them without thinking about it. Um, and so for, for some of our young people learning those habits, you know, whether it's how to brush your teeth well or zip doing zips, you know, those tricky things, um, mm-hmm. it can take a little bit longer. So there's, so it's, there's, so it's like the fine motor skills are the, are, are the difficult parts. Yeah. You, people could struggle with fine motor skills. Some people do and some people don't. Um, but it's probably more things that you would see about around impulse control, executive functioning, um, sort of like around attention, which could look a little bit at like ADHD um, right. and and memory in particular. Um, are the kind of common things that everybody, but then things like abstract thinking. Um, so our young people are real concrete learners, they're real hands-on learners, um, but trying to learn something abstractly and then move that concept from one area to another, they really struggle with. Um, things like problem solving and planning and solutions and find those skills, again, they would struggle with those things, partly because, you know, having to hold things in memory, you're having to hold several things in tandem at once, you're having to move a concept that you learn in one area of life to another area of life um mm. so yeah, it's quite it's quite a complex condition in that sense um yeah. often people with fesd struggle with sleep as well which is not uncommon okay. for a lot of neurodiverse people but yeah sleep is a quite common thing um there's lots of different information around that and you know how actually in utero when you're exposed to the alcohol you sleep as a baby in utero so the alcohol is is actually impinging on that sleep patterns and cycling right from before you, you know, are sitting in a cot, um, trying right, to. Right, I so, see, see, so that I mean, I, I think that we're going to find quite a few of these things. I had no idea that that was something that would be a sort of cause and effect. I I didn't even yeah. thought so. Alco- <clears throat> so alcohol is like the most toxic substance that you could expose a baby to um mm. with the most long-term damage right. so 
we would say it's more toxic than heroin, cocaine, things like that, because of the long term damage. Yeah. Um, and and, and again, that often really surprises people. Yeah, I mean, that that is really, really baffling. And again, highlights just the the massive risk like you said 45 percent of pregnancies unplanned un, unknown so that's, that's a big window of risk isn't it for a substance that like we've said is a legal and popularly used substance absolutely yes yeah. so so that I, I suppose it's the same as with autism if you say autism you know people not so much anymore, I don't think, but their initial thoughts would go to Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man and autism is is straight to that. And it's, you know, like you say, oh, I've met one person with autism, therefore I've met them all and they're all going to be like this. When actually, no, you've met one person with autism. That means you've met one person with autism. And the same with FASD. So with, with that in mind, sort of what... What are the long-term effects or long-term symptoms of FASD? Are those, would they necessarily stay in place? So let's just say the sleep issues or the memory issues. Would that be something that you'd see right up into adulthood? Or are yeah. there things that you <clears throat> support? Yeah, so um, sort of typically speaking, we would say that FASD is spiky. It's got a spiky okay. profile. And what that means is people can quite often do something in the morning they get quite tired they get cognitively fatigued so by the afternoon they might not be able to do that same thing that can be really confusing as a caregiver um, mm. but also as a, as a teacher in a classroom or or from one day to next because of like that short-term memory thing they did something yesterday but they can't you know they can't recall that information today um, and quite often what you'll find is they might fill in blanks as well so confabulation I'm sure you've talked about that at some other point um but our, our young people have, have got amazing memories for filling in the blanks um or mismemory mismemory oh god I can't even say it misremembering things that have happened so you know they think something happened and they because they can't remember it so they'll just sort of fill that in instead and then that actually becomes their memory yeah yeah um which is really confusing if that's the world you're living in um, and actually, you know, there's some some kind of research to show as well that actually takes more brain function for our guys. So they, they're needing to, like, use more oxygen just to do those, you know, sitting still at a table could be really challenging um, because, you know, their parasitic system isn't um, isn't kind of calm all the time. It's it's always sort of on the go. So that just in itself is taking more energy to sit there and then you you've got to try and listen to what a teacher's saying and you're not getting distracted by your friend that sat next to you or you're not getting distracted by all of the other things happening in the classroom and other children so it's quite it's quite hard for them in some senses uh, and yeah. that spiky profile is it goes all the way through life it you know FESD unfortunately is a lifelong condition there isn't a you know there is no solution but mm. there is lots of things that we can do to accommodate somebody and to support them and give them the right scaffolding so early diagnosis really important and having the those around them that understand and are able to scaffold 
so that they're able to succeed in life, which they completely and utterly can do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's very easy to hear a lot of these things and hear that sort of diagnosis and those symptoms and think, oh, crikey, there's no light at the end of that tunnel. That's just going to be doom and gloom and, and you're always going to be challenged with it. But actually, it's the same as autism. I would suggest sort of most disabilities, actually, and attachment disorder, FSD, it's not, it's not the sort of like, that's it. You're never going to see any light at the end of the tunnel. Actually, you can put some things in place and you can put some building blocks in place and coping mechanisms in place to help our children to grow into high functioning. I'm, I'm using the bunny ears normal here, <laughs> um, but just sort of everyday human beings. Um, because I imagine, and I don't know, but I imagine there's a lot of people out there with FASD that aren't even aware that they've got FASD. Absolutely. So one of the league tables that we maybe don't want to be on, but we are, is yeah. the number of alcohol exposed pregnancies. So in the UK, that's just over 40%. So, sorry. Big number. So 40% of pregnancies would be alcohol exposed wow and that is fourth in the world that's... so it's not a league table that we want to be on no it's a league table we are on and you're absolutely right FESD um because prenatal alcohol exposure might not be always considered might not be asked about maybe isn't recorded for children that come through the care system then it's dependent on the social worker having written it down or health visitor and for that record to follow the child which often it wouldn't yeah um, so things like in Scotland we have the sign guidelines sorry to interrupt and no, in no. and in England shortly they'll have the nice quality standards so those the nice quality standards will hopefully make a difference um, in relation to the history of the child pre-birth and that history going with them not staying with biological mother um yeah. you know especially for children who are not going to stay in that family then that's in the future then that's really critical mm. yeah and it's i suppose that's i mean that's the a bigger picture as well isn't it it's about actually getting more information and more medical information that can be passed on to just give people a, a, a fairer crack of the whip and a fairer opportunity to do the right things absolutely yeah so what what could we do as adopters um, if we are presented with a, a profile of a, a child or children that there is a diagnosis of FASD? What can we put in place to, to help these children? Well, as an adoptive parent myself of three children, one of whom's got an FESD diagnosis, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak from my own experience. <laughs> I'd be saying definitely be joining Adoption UK, um, be getting in touch and joining um, a local support group, which, which there are many now. Um, yeah. FESD has been quite a grassroots um, sort of movement, if you like, until recent years. Um, so... There's FESD Alliance UK, which um, FESD Hub, which I represent as part of, but that um, has many organisations across the whole of the UK. 
So jo join a local support group. Obviously, you'd be more than welcome to come and join the hub. We have an online support group. Well, it doesn't matter where you live in the world to be part of that. Oh, fantastic. Um, and there are others as well. If you search in Facebook, you'll find many. Um, and through that peer support, you kind of, you know, it's a bit like other elements of adoptive um, parenting. By meeting, you know, those who are on the similar journey, uh, either a little bit ahead of you or at the same time of you, or even that you are ahead of somebody else and can give them, you know, the wisdom of your experience, mm. then that's, that somehow lightens the load a little bit, doesn't it? Or at least it makes you think, I'm not completely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Someone else out there is getting it as well. Um, and I think that, you know, for kind of your own self-care, you know, that's banded around a lot, isn't it? Self-care, self-compassion. Yeah. But for me personally, I think that that's been like the biggest thing that I did uh, as an adoptive parent was reaching out to others and trying to just understand what was happening in my family what could I expect in the future you know some of it is scary it's no doubt about it but yeah. then there's other parts of adoption parenting that are also scary um you know it's, and it, yeah it's I think I suppose for me I think if you throw yourself into it with love care and affection and time yeah there's so many scary elements but actually the rewards are amazing so yeah. there are i i've always said there are so many adopters out there that are so ready to help and so ready to get on board and give you a, a, a boost that you're never alone mm -hmm. um, totally and and i think that's incredible and i think you know when i look at um, little dude and some of the experiences that he had and I was like oh how on earth will we ever deal with this well you start slow and you build it up don't you and yeah. you build your network you build your sort of people that can help and you just build up your own knowledge um, and you just start sort of improving on things hopefully yeah we can't be like too harsh on ourselves you know we're I, yeah you can read loads of books and our kids never read the book do they they never they never follow the chapters the way you've read it um I mean I remember at one point one of my elders being like oh mama you've been reading a book again haven't you, you know? it's like yeah you can see straight through me um, yes and so, if you don't mind this chapter says you're supposed to say this right now come yeah. on <laughs> well, that never happens and it, it's just the same with you know a child with a neurodevelopmental condition that yeah it's lifelong yes um there's some struggles in it there's genuine challenges and to be honest most of the challenges fighting systems to yeah. get your child the support they need and that's probably no different to any other parent of a child with additional needs yeah. unfortunately and would i be right in saying that like you, you mentioned it was grassroots, but I'd be right in saying that FASD is something that in the UK, we're quite slow to the party. We've been quite late to the party to learn about it and start talking about it. Because I know I've only been hearing about it, I'll say for about five to 10 years. I When we went through our process, we didn't hear about FASD. So ours was nine years ago now. So would you say we're we're quite 
late to the party but we're catching up yeah definitely so i think as a well it used to be called fas so that would be fetal um alcohol syndrome um and some people maybe would still refer to that you'd be unlikely to get a diagnosis of fas these days um <clears throat> sign guidelines in england will change that it'll be um, they're sorry, the nice quality standards in England are adopting the same guidelines from Scotland, which is um, FES with facial features or FES without. Right, um, facial okay. features, just for those that are listening, because often people talk about them. Well, in fact, only 10% of those that would get a diagnosis would actually have the three facial features. So you, this is the thing about FESD. It's very hidden disability. Our kids can look just like anybody else and for the most part in lots of areas they're very very good at masking so they can also behave like other people or you know they're struggling in certain areas and then that's often misunderstood as poor behavior right. rather than you know rather than uh, actually what's going on is it's brain damage yeah. so yeah okay. and as as a nation we're yeah we've taken a while but um as, as the UK as a whole, but we're catching up and, you know, Canada, uh, Australia are sort of leaps ahead of us, but we're really lucky. We've got some amazing researchers now. So um, the team here in Scotland, the Fetal Alcohol Advisory Support Team, um, they kind of lead the way from a clinical point of view in Scotland. And there's the Salford Group um, based in Manchester, obviously Salford. Um, and then you've obviously got people like Raj Mukherjee, you know, from the Surrey Clinic, which I'm sure lots of your listeners will be familiar with. And equally, you know, the Centre for FESD as well. So there's there's lots of different um, people kind of really trying to kind of take this forward, um, both from a supporting carers and parents, but also mm. from a research point of view to be able to support that. You know, so it's, it's not research anymore about the biology so much it's more research around what's happening to these individuals what's happening when they transition into adulthood how can we better um, develop services to support parents and carers and to support the individuals so yeah things have really shifted we we did a conference back in 2018 and if I just think of the difference between then and now it's huge I mean the hub didn't exist at that point um you know so that's a big thing for a start yeah, but um yeah. you know it's it's massively changed in the last four or five years definitely which is really exciting actually isn't it because I think um a lot of issues and a lot of concerns and a lot of things that go wrong is when we have just a lack of information a lack of knowledge leads to ignorance and ignorance does not lead to bliss no. uh, so having all of these sort of various options and various hubs and support groups it means that we're starting to talk about it and to understand it more and hopefully you, you've kind of alluded to it but hopefully the institutions can then follow suit and start to understand as well um yeah and that's that's probably you know maybe, maybe that's at the minute is is the frustration area is either the support in school education or actually being able to access a diagnosis so that's, that's still really difficult for people so is there sort of <laughs> i'm about to ask a magic bean question <laughs> is there sort of um any particular 
tips that you might give to someone to sort of express getting a diagnosis? Is there any special things that they can do to help them get that diagnosis quicker? Yeah, I think not necessarily get it quicker, but certainly once you've found yourself in the right place to be able to express your concerns and your challenges that your child is experiencing. So um, that you can do that in a number of ways. Obviously, you can read books, you can listen to podcasts, you can go online and watch videos, you can download fact sheets, uh, you can join a join a support group and speak to other parents um you know different organizations such as ourselves have got resources that would help you to just think okay so you know what is my concern and how do I express that in a way that a clinician is going to understand as well and I think unfortunately it is a bit about you know teaching yourself their language so that when you're presenting something it's you know they're going to hear it yeah yeah. And that's not easy. I don't even find that easy. And this is what I do every day of the week. Um, and I still find, and also we need to remember we're emotional beings. So, yeah. you know, I can sit and help another parent in a in a, a meeting around the child for school. But if I'm sat there as the parent, I'm emotionally engaged in this thing in a way that I'm not when I'm supporting another parent. So we also, you know, it is about self-care. It is about remembering that we're not superhuman um, you know beings and I, I always laugh with my son's educational psychologist and say look I went through the adoption process part of that process was assessing if I could advocate for a child I didn't yet even know mm. and I did that and now please don't get upset when I exactly what I'm doing I'm advocating for my child yeah um, and you know I think we just we just sort of I don't know is it like having a little mirror on the wall and you just got to tell yourself some good things about yourself each day you know just because we all have self-doubt we all have disbelief that you know is this going to happen and we can all go to like a dark dark place about what the future might be I um so when when I'm delivering training um we talk about any parent that's become a parent through any way has the guilt badge sort of sewn onto their arm as soon as they become a parent but we talk about within adoption it's kind of welded onto you (laughs) um, and you feel this guilt of oh right okay so like you said I've promised I would be an advocate and I've seen that so many tall people have let these kids down I will not be that tall person I will be the right one and naturally because you're a human you won't get it right 100% of the time. And the second we do, we fall off that sort of perch that we put ourselves on and feel utter guilt for getting it wrong. Yeah. But we shouldn't. And this is, again, this is what I try to talk about on the podcast and in training. Everyone gets it wrong. Everyone yeah. makes mistakes. And there is no such thing as perfect. And I don't believe that there ever will be when it comes to parenting. It, it, but that's okay. Yeah, okay totally. That we get it wrong and that we misunderstand something. Um, and I, I guess. And it's about the repair, isn't it? It's about what you do with that, and it's about yeah. you know whether that's a repair with your child, with your spouse, with your partner, or whether it's a repair with a teacher. Uh, you know I've fallen out with teachers and it's just like well okay I'm just gonna have to swallow my pride here and just say yep sorry I was a bit wrong there um but I was a bit emotional uh hope you'll understand this is really important to me um and 
yeah it's about how we repair and actually that's what we're then demonstrating to our children as well you know we have a funny saying in our family which is about you know oh well I'm just yes because I'm like Mary Poppins I'm practically perfect you know it's actually my husband that says it not me um, <laughs> and the kids will laugh now because they're at such an age where they can understand the irony of it but yeah. it, it is that thing you know well nobody is are they nobody is so let's not pretend yeah, and absolutely. and yeah it's, it's about how do we repair those things and how do we then move on and move forward and you know keep relationships and keep building mm, absolutely and and I guess as well what you mentioned there about sort of the institution and within education I mean the, the work that I do with adopters and the conversations I have within adoption I would say at least 40% of my conversations will come back to education and some form of struggle that someone has had within the educational sector. Um, would, you, would you have any guidance or tips for a parent that's got a child that's got that diagnosis? Would you have any suggestions? What a perfect link in Richard to, yes, we've just released six um, fact sheets on FASD and education. So they're free to download from the FESD Hub web pages with an Adoption UK website. So I can make sure you've got the link and you can share it on the bottom of the podcast. Um, so there's all information there about, you know, a planning a meeting with your child. Um, it is Scottish specific around the rights and legislation, but obviously equally they'll be the similar in, in England. Um, but, you know, sort of, transitioning your child into school so things that you can do as a parent carer but also the way to ask school to do those things what you could expect from school and two of the fact sheets are specifically for teachers as well and um, so we're really lucky within our team we've actually got two teachers that work for us as our FESD education advisors so they're they're, they're qualified and they're working teachers and they work part-time for us as well um, and we've also got um, collaborative working with um, two clinical psychologists that are fed into that so the fact sheets have been through all sorts have been through Education Scotland as well. So, um, you know, they're, they're a great resource and they're free for everybody. It doesn't matter Amazing. where you live. Well, I'll, um, I'll make sure I've got the link for that to, to share on that um, because what, what an incredible tool to have. Um, yeah. And it sounds like there's been a crap load of work gone into doing that and <laughs> making those work. So that's you know that's that's fantastic. I'm I'm confident there will be so many adopters out there that are so grateful for that piece of work because again it comes back down to educating, doesn't it? Yeah it does. There's educating um, and we're in, we're just in the process of um putting together which will be available in the autumn um some strategy training um, workshops which will be available both to teachers and to parents carers um, mm. and we also do or and and some of those are free of charge which you don't always get um, no, so no, if, you, yeah. if you live in Scotland it's free if you're an adoption UK member it's a very reduced rate if you're neither of those things it's still quite cheap yeah. so oh, well, there are options really for incredible. people as well but I, I, I think you know it's about being honest with school. It's about, you know, um, looking at what are the, in Scotland, we have something called Shinari indicators. 
Um, right. so this is kind of like about um, health, well-being, kind of, they're, they're all framed around that. Mm. Um, so it's, it's looking at those things and thinking, you know, how is my child's disability impacting on them accessing learning and progressing in their education? And when I'm talking to teachers, you know, it's talking about those things and and then, you know, what strategies do I use at home that could be used at school? And what strategies are used at school that I could use at home? Because we can, every day is a learning day. We can all learn something. Um, and yeah. it's very much, you know, trying to make that partnership, which is, is tricky. Um, you know, I've got primary age school children and I've got senior school children. And um, it's a different kettle of fish when they get to high school. Lots of changes in a day. You don't get the same teacher to speak to, but... You know, I'm quite good friends with the pastoral teacher now on first name terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've done quite a lot of um, talking about education and I don't think I'm done. Um, <laughs> but my my sort of my experience has been the better the relationship you can build with the school, the better it's going to be. Yeah. And, and finding finding a school that's not necessarily scoring high in Ofsted but actually scoring really well with pastoral care and going the extra mile with emotional needs I think if a school can tick that box the academic intelligence will follow yeah absolutely and you know sometimes the schools that are in the more challenging areas and especially like I don't live in the city now but at one point I did we did as a family um, and an inner city school that's got, you know, in a more challenging area, but actually it's maybe got more resource as yeah. well to deal with those things. It's more common. It's more used to dealing with the challenging and I'm doing the bunny rabbit ears now yeah. behavior. Um, then I, sometimes our kids fit in better in that place than, you know, the nice, very middle class stayed environment that isn't, you know, isn't used to little Johnny running around and doing whatever random activities doing today yeah no our, our kids have a have a tendency to stand out in that sort of environment don't they so it almost highlights it and then amplifies it yeah uh, so yeah okay that's um that's really cool so as a parent of a child with FASD and this this is moving on to the I suppose a personal question, but it's a nice personal question, so I'm sure it's fine. But if it's not, tell me. Um, would you have any sort of tips from your own personal experience? Would you have any guidance or, to put it in a, a trickier way, if you could go back 10 years or five years and say to yourself, right, here's what I would do differently or the same, what would you suggest to, to other adopters? Change your expectations. Nice. change your expectations to meet your child's abilities and yeah. to meet your child the way your child's brain works so look at it through an FASD lens learn learn what makes them tick learn what makes them excited and engage them through those things yeah. and you know it's not changing your expectations doesn't mean that you're not hopeful for their future that you're not um, you know wanting them to succeed you're not wanting them to achieve the very best that they can, but it's just changing what your expectations might be. I think a lot of parents that I speak to, you just hear, you know, we, we kind of, I think, have to really own the grief and loss. Mm. And it's our grief and loss. It's not really our child's because they're just on the start of life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, 
That is really, really lovely. And I think, I think that as adopters, we should do that anyway. We should, mm -hmm. we shouldn't set an expectation as to our own. We should see what our children can achieve because I think that there are many pillars of success. And I think yeah. it would be very dangerous and indeed foolish of us to say, uh, let's just take education. They need to be academically intelligent in order to be successful or me to say that they are successful. Actually, what's a win for them and what what works and what is a, a great end result for, for this individual? Yeah, it's that old thing, isn't it, about pick your battles, you know? Yeah. I never thought I'd be the parent that allowed chocolate spread for breakfast. <laughs> Quite frankly, if eating chocolate spread means that we can get out of the house when we need to, then the chocolate spread for breakfast is fine. <laughs> we're just not going to have it for lunch and tea. And we're pretty clear about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have this like ongoing negotiating conversation every morning. And we're getting there. It's becoming a habit. So, you know, it's able to be repeated back to me. Well, I'm choosing to do this right now, mummy. And I know I can't have it for the rest of the meals today. That is correct. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big tick. And we are moving forward. <laughs> Absolutely yeah claim those wins <laughs> absolutely absolutely well that's um yeah that's i mean yeah it's that's made me smile because that's adoption that's parenting isn't it it's it's claim the win enjoy the win when you have it pick your battles if you lose a battle it's all right you can yeah. come back to it um so yeah no that's um that's awesome well i'm gonna wrap things up because i'm aware of your conscientious of your time um is there any anything else that you would like to say to adopters obviously i'm going to make sure that i've got all links to get back to you um so as people can sort of drop you a line or ask you any questions but are there any other sort of things that you think people should be aware of or know um no, I mean, I suppose if I was going to sum up FASD, then I really, really like the way that can FASD. So they're um, a research sort of organization within Canada, but um, have led the way on developing some of the supports for parents and carers as well. And, and this is how they describe FASD. So FASD stands for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as we've said. It's a lifelong disability that affects the brain and body of people who are exposed to alcohol in the womb. Each person with FASD has both strengths and challenges and will need special support to help them succeed with many different parts of their daily life. But that's absolutely what they can do. They can succeed. Yeah, it's it's the same as again, I keep going back to autism only because I work with people, adults with autism, but it's the same as autism. It's it doesn't mean that you won't be able to function in life. It doesn't mean that you won't be able to move on and have independence and achieve things for yourself. You are still going to be so super capable. Um, and it's about helping our children to just put those blocks in place and put those sort of, I guess, mechanisms in place to allow them to cope and allow them to make things make sense. Um, yeah. that's our job right so absolutely yeah lovely well thank you again Ali for for your time I know it's it's going to help so so many people I've learned a lot 
today, um, which is really great. And it puts me in a much stronger position to talk to other people about it. But at the end of each of those conversations, I will be giving them your details. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you again. And a, a huge thank you from all of our listeners. I know that it's going to be incredible um, information for them. So it's, it's really, really wonderful to have had you on. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Richard. No worries. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much, everyone, and uh, I'll catch up with you next week.